Thanks for pressing play. On this remarkable episode, you're going to learn at least three things. One, how to identify a psychopath. Two, what most people, and especially Hollywood, don't know about psychopathy. And how you can be in a relationship that works with a psychopath. You see, our guest today is the best-selling author of Confessions of a Sociopath, A Life Spent Hiding in Plain Sight. Her name is Emmy Thomas, which is a pseudonym. She's a lawyer, musician, and now teacher. And she's among the first psychopaths or sociopaths to come out of the closet and share about her life and her experience. This episode will have you thinking deeply about your identity, your relationships, and the masks that we all wear, as well as our ability to follow and accept our own different and be exactly who we are, and a whole lot more. You see, Emmy and I dig into what it means to be a sociopath, why you should not fear them. Yes, that's right. Why you shouldn't be afraid of her or any other. Why Hollywood is so off in their depiction of these folks, uh, how they experience life. What does it mean to have no empathy, which is one of the primary characteristics of a sociopath or a psychopath? Why Emmy thinks that psychopathy is actually a superpower. Also, what should you do if you want to help or support a person with this neurological difference and why it's actually okay to be in a long-term friendship or relationship with one? Emmy also shares what it means for her to be in love. Uh, You see, she is in a long-term committed partnership with another psychopath. Uh, and why Emmy is on a mission to help psychopaths, sociopaths, and to educate the world about them. There's another thing I'd like to underscore about the dialogue you're about to hear. We have already received much criticism for having Emmy on. And um, Emmy is a person who's experienced some very nasty judgment and harassment since her book came out. She was on Dr. Phil. She did a whole series of other things to begin a broad dialogue with the world about who psychopaths are. Now, I want you to know, around here, our primary goal is to be curious, open, and gain understanding. No matter what you think of psychopaths, this dialogue will open the aperture of your mind and, dare I say, make you a different person. Also, as a neurodiverse person myself, neurodiversity, I think, is a very important topic. And so this is the first of a two-part series on neurodiversity. Coming soon, Sarah Fay, the author of Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnosis. Make sure you follow and or subscribe to this podcast to uh, make sure that you won't miss uh, Sarah Fay coming up soon. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business leaders. Join me for the first ever Cloud Wars Live Expo, June 28th through 30, 2022, in beautiful San Francisco at the Moscone Center. I'll be there live with my buddy, Bob Evans. And um, the Cloud Wars Expo might be the most important thing to happen in the cloud since the cloud got started. You'll have a big, the biggest cloud companies there, the coolest cloud startups, over 40 hours of legendary cloud education, Bob Evans, myself, and way more legendary (laughs) speakers and presenters and thinkers. Cloudwarsexpo.com. Get your tickets right now and join me there. All right. Let's have a dialogue with a psychopath. Hey-ho, let's go. 
Well, Amy, it uh, sure is wonderful to meet you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. What, oh, what should I call you? Do people, do you go by Chris? Yeah, Chris is great. Okay. Yeah. I'm not one of these people that's hard over about uh, that stuff. You know, some people call me Christopher. Some people call me Chris. I don't care. I'm just glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have a, a, a thousand things I want to uh, speak with you about. I've been living in your world for the last several weeks, uh, your book. And of course, you're, you're uh, highly visible in the external world. So podcasts and videos and the like. But maybe could I just start with, when did you know you were different? I always knew that I was different. Always, always, always knew I was different. But I had so many things that made me different. I just assumed it was one of those. Like I, I was raised in this big Mormon family. So I grew up with, with five siblings, right? And I, we had just weird idiosyncrasies, all, all sorts of idiosyncrasies. My dad was kind of a crazy guy. Even now they call him Einstein because he wears his hair kind of like white and crazy and his eyebrows are like long and curly. And he says he thinks that makes him look distinguished. You know, they get like caught in his eye because he's such a weirdo about it. Right. So there were lots of things that people could have thought were weird about me. You know, I wore the same clothes to school because I was like a middle child and I had two older brothers. So it was like either getting like hand-me-downs from them, but they didn't always fit. And it was kind of ups and downs with like growing up, you know, like my dad was a lawyer, but we'd come back home from like theme parks and the electricity would be out because he hadn't paid the bill. You know, he was just good at some things, really bad at other things. So it was super quirky uh, family and super quirky kind of religion. And also he, he happens to be smart. We're all pretty smart. Um, you know, I had a sister who scored like super high in the SATs. I was a national merit scholar. I had another sister who was a national merit scholar. So pretty smart family kind of doing, <laughs> trying to fit in to normal society. There were a lot of reasons to think that I was weird. Uh, and people treated me like I was weird a little bit. But I was also very, I think, precocious and charming as a child. So I think a lot of that charmed a lot of people. Um, so there were, yeah, that, that I used to think mostly that it was smart, maybe a little bit that it was, I had weird parents a little bit that I kind of came from a weird religion. So lots of weird to get going. And, and by the yeah, way, a lot of weird, I, I got a lot of room for a lot of weird. I relate to a lot of what you just said. And, you know, of course, one of the great all time quotes in my opinion is Hunter S. Thompson, when the going gets weird, the, the weird turn professional. So, um, I think weird is good. So you knew you were from a weird family and maybe you were a little weird. Yes, always. And when did it occur to you or did it or how did it occur to you that um, maybe you were more than just weird, so to speak? <laughs> I mean, I had so many kind of weird things where I just knew, oh, hey, everyone's acting like that. That's definitely not me. Like so during puberty, everybody was kind of losing their collective minds during puberty and I just was like, I don't get it. I don't get the self-consciousness. I don't get the awkwardness. I don't get the uh, kind of like they were going through some sort of like new identity, you know, like choosing new identities. I kind of didn't get that. Although I got it in a way be because I would kind of choose like a new identity every day, you know, or for or whatever situation that I was in, but it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to dress this way because now I am goth. I'm going to dress this way because now I am whatever. 
I just dressed whatever way kind of like made me most palatable to to the people that I wanted to impress the most, I guess, that made my life easiest. I always just chose like the easiest way to get the best results. And I, so for a while, I just thought people were stupid, right? And, you know, like you could probably forgive me because probably a lot of you were stupid <laughs> during some of the years of your teenage years, puberty and stuff, making some weird choices. And, you know, you uh, there's there's a Reddit, I think, called the blunder years where people post the photos of them looking stupid <laughs> you know, <laughs> dressed up in like the latest fad that looks ridiculous or whatever so i i really was just kind of grateful for a long time that i wasn't like everybody else it seemed like everybody else was struggling it didn't seem like a fun experience to kind of go through all these like uh peer pressure social things and i just was kind of not part of that i wasn't really subject to peer pressure I mean, I kind of knew how to work the social system. I was like friends with all groups, which I think in some ways is indicative of a personality disorder. Now I look back on it. <laughs> like I could get equally along with the jocks as the goths, as, you know, I played in a band, I surfed, I was like kind of this cool, unusual person. But I, I you know, going on to college was the first time that I had real problems with relationships because in, I guess in high school, you just have people you eat with at lunch right or I that's what I had and then in college I started getting like deeper friendships but I lost basically all those friendships I don't have any friends still from college uh, so, and then I kind of was like well that was a little bit of a fluke you know like you, you give yourself like a uh, uh, room for error you know we made some mistakes in those relationships let's go on to law school then on in law school I was still having problems and uh, during one of my law school clerkships, kind of internships during one of the summers of law school, I happened to be in sharing an office with a, another person I had never met before, but we're both law students. And so we talked and the, uh, the internship did not have enough work. It was like maybe 10 hours of work for the whole week to do, but we were expected to be there on call the entire time. So we just had a bunch of free time to like hang around and chat. She was a really interesting person. And partly because I thought I'll never see this person again. I just like talked to her about whatever. I was very open with whatever I talked to her about. And then after a few weeks of this, she was like, you may want to consider the possibility that you're a sociopath. And it was the first time I had ever heard the term be applied to me. And it was kind of the first time I had really heard the term that much at all, you know, I know that kind of surprises people, but I didn't grow up watching horror movies. I was, I couldn't even watch rated R movies when I was a child. I don't even, I know I did watch them when I went to college, but you know, I just was not, that was not my, <laughs> was not my area of interest, I guess. So I just Googled, this was early in the era of Google. I just, maybe it was and how, a how old would you have been? Remind me, Emmy, when, when this conversation happened and you started to Google. Yeah. Early twenties. Cause I was in law school. Okay. Yeah. Early twenties, early to kind of mid twenties. And, uh, I and just what, came did, up what did with, you Google? Uh, just sociopath. Like <laughs> what is a sociopath or sociopath criteria or, you know, whatever sociopath characteristics. And so I just got a list of things and I was just going through a list and it turned out to be one, two lists on top, stacked on top of each other in this like era of like very old design of web pages. 
And one was the PCLR. And I was like, well, this doesn't really fit. But the other one was Hervey Cleckley's checklist uh, uh, criteria for psychopaths. And I thought, wow, this is really, this really fits. But I, at the time, I just did nothing with it. It was like I found out that I was like related to like Queen Anne or something. I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) You know, and I just moved on. So maybe let's uh, touch on that for a minute. I I remember the exact moment that I found out that I was dyslexic. It was a similar situation like yours. However, um, when it was put to me, I think you're dyslexic. And then this light bulb went on in my head. It was sort of like everything changed. It was a bit of a, like a religious awakening or something. Uh, and that was not your experience when you had this moment where you said, hmm, maybe I'm a sociopath. Yeah. Yes. That, that wasn't my experience. You know, I can kind of explain why. I always had that experience. Like, even when they're like, you have appendicitis, we need to take your appendix out. I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like stuff is so removed when you're a psychopath. It's a personality disorder. And all personality disorders have some issue with like your personality, obviously, with like your identity, yourself, kind of the way that you relate to yourself and uh, consequently the way that you relate to others. And one of the features of my experience of my own personality disorder is that I just had like a very weak connection to my identity. And I think that's what allowed me to be so much like a chameleon, allowed me to be so much you know, like fit in with whoever, you know, and I never went through this identity crisis of puberty and and being a teenager because I just did not kind of care. It wasn't like I was like, I'm aware of this and I affirmatively am rejecting it. It wasn't like I was even aware that other people <laughs> even like, I guess I could see other people doing it, but I, it was just so foreign to my experience. So alien to me to think that you would put so much attention towards your own identity and connection, like an emotional connection to your own identity, to your own feelings, to be so kind of wrapped up in like who you were, uh, was just very, not my experience, right? Uh, Having a personality disorder. So when somebody said something like, oh, you are, you know, you're a sociopath, then I thought, you know, sure. It's It had like the same kind of connection to me as, as knowing that I'm like size eight shoe size. Like, wow, <laughs> kind of who cares? Like maybe something to keep in mind. But it especially at that time, it didn't really bother me because uh, at the time it still was a superpower. Everybody's still kind of being, you know, having like psychological breakdowns in law school, you know, emotional issues in college, right? So it was still kind of felt like I was just having a better time of things because I wasn't uh, experiencing those things. You know, I was able to just go to class and not be like worried about what it meant for the rest of my life if I got a bad grade in a class. You know, I would just, I would just do the thing, right? I didn't take a second step and be like, how does this reflect on me? <laughs> or what does this mean for me? Which I realize a lot of people do. Hmm. That's so fascinating. So you said a whole bunch of things that in there. Um, towards the beginning, Emmy, I think you said that you have a, quote, weak connection to my identity. Did I hear that right? Yes. And so, um, I mean, of course, I know how I relate to myself, most other people know how they relate to themselves, that is to say their identity. Um, and so what does I have a weak connection to my identity mean for Emmy? 
Well, I think it's kind of like, uh, I think of myself as like a CPU or an operating system, not the software that's being run, you know, is a good way to put it. Like, it's just something that kind of processes things, but there's not really a lot of uh, there, there, you know, there's not a lot of stability. It's just like an Excel, not even an Excel spreadsheet, but the formulas in the Excel spreadsheet, crunching the numbers. So the the inputs have to come from some sort of external source because they're not coming from inside. I'm not acting from a place of like my own passions, my own preference, my own identity. So a good example might be some people would have in their identity a sense that they're an honest person. So when faced with a choice, they'd say, I'm an honest person. I will self-express and act in an honest way. But I did not have any of that. I wasn't like, I'm an honest person, so therefore I will be honest. Instead, in the absence of that, what, what do you have to do? I guess you just become very outcome oriented, which is if I tell the truth in this particular situation, then I get X result. If I tell a lie, I get Y result. And then you're just choosing between outcomes. So it's uh, basically as you know, my own experience of it, of my personality disorder, I was forced essentially to be outcome oriented all the time. I didn't even know how to be process oriented until I did like several years of therapy. And so in the beginning, we hear this expression where it, it's not just um, that you got to the outcome, it's how you got to the outcome really matters. That was a foreign concept at the time. Right. Yeah. What is it? The ends justify the means or right. something? So the ends like always that. justified the means? 100% of the time, because you don't have any sense of yourself. And so like there's... There's no way to kind of choose yourself. There's no way to choose any other way. You know, like th there is no process to choose unless you wanted to be. And this is kind of funny. I think it is a little bit popular, like just part of a cult <laughs> or something. <laughs> then you could adopt the process of the cult. And in some ways, I think I did do that. I adopt the process of my religion to some extent. I adopted the process of like just doing well in school whenever school was a thing. Adopted the process of uh, excelling at whatever the thing was that I was doing. And it was easy for me to just adapt because there's nothing internal that was fighting against it. There was nothing that's like, you know, I don't really want to work hard at this. I would just force myself to do it. So it is, uh, yeah, I guess it is a really interesting concept. I think the saddest thing though, is that you never self-express because you don't have a sense of self from which to self-express. And that's one thing that, you know, of all the, the psychopaths that I've met, they're like, uh, they're, they're quite different. You know, some of them I have certain things in common with other things, you know, no. And but the one thing that seemed really consistent is that they all lack a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. And I actually think it's because of this. I think it's because they never self-express in any choices in their life. They don't have that sense of self from which to be like, I'm living my life's purpose. And so they lack that sense of purpose. So much to unpack there. On the identity stuff, maybe go, go to something simple uh, to help me understand. So, of course, our relationship with ourselves evolves over time and who we are over time changes. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in the last six years, uh, I went from being a person who wrote a book. That was my identity. That was my relationship with myself, co-authored a book with other amazing folks. 
And today, if you asked me, one of the self-identifying characteristics I would tell you is that I am a writer, even though when my first book got published, I did, I would not have identified as such. And it's only been in the last, you know, several years that I've identified as such. And so now I have a relationship with myself that says I'm a writer. Um, so on something like that, you've written a book. Mm-hmm. Do you identify as a writer or do you have any of those sort of personality markers with yourself in your dialogue with yourself? Uh, not really. Like if I had to write down, like I, I did acupuncture for the first time and I put lawyer down just cause they asked. And I was like, it's just better to say it. <laughs> it's just better to give an answer. But even like my gender, my sexual orientation, like my ethnicity, my race, like none of that really seems to be me. I don't have really a connection, although I know they're true. Just like I know my height is true. I know my weight's true. I know the color of my hair, right? I know my age, but I don't feel those things in like this way that it's like, this is me. It's just like these things happen to be true, kind of the same way that you can think about things that happen to be true about someone, someone more distant from you, maybe like your grandpa there, you know, there's a connection there, but you don't emotionally, psychologically feel that connection to those traits. You're, you're, there's like a remove from it. This, and you have the same thing for your emotions. You know, the emotions are there. You just don't identify with them. They hmm. don't feel like yours necessarily. They just feel like things that are happening to you. And that's actually, if as you were describing the writer, I was like, well, you're not really a writer. And I don't mean to say this, but this is just the way I think. Right. I want to know. Yeah. Yes. I would say you're not really a writer. That's just something that happened to you. Right. Got it. <laughs> like appendicitis. Yes. And, and if I said to you, Emmy, the reality is I worked very hard to become a writer. It didn't just happen to me. It took years and years and years. And I told you the whole story and I'm dyslexic and I have dyscalculia and the whole litany of woe that goes with how I got to a place where I can say without laughing at myself, never mind having the world laugh at me, that I'm actually a writer. And none of, none of that matters. It, it just sort of feels like, ah, it just happened. You Just like if I stub my toe. Well, you know, so to kind of tell you the truth about identity, I still, I have learned to make certain things kind of matter, certain things that are more integral to me. But in your situation, yeah, still, I would say that it, it doesn't matter that you put the work in because you lived in a world in which there's such thing as writing and that that was potentially not possible. So one thought experiment I kind of like to think about with this is I'm was a, uh, studied music in college, right? Uh, and I like to think about opera singing is very unique, you know, even, even though there's been singing, you know, forever in order to generate that sound of an opera singer, they're not mic'd, you know, there's no sound amplification. So they have to sing over an orchestra that's like 50 pieces big. So the amount of kind of training that goes into it and the specificity of opera singing. So I sometimes think about an opera singer who was the best opera singer that has ever lived except they were never an opera singer because they lived in Africa in 500 BC before opera was even invented. So there are certain things that I kind of think are like more core integral. Those things are easier for me to connect with still, you know, my own emotions, my own reactions, my own, like now after, after all of therapy, I think I'm a truth seeker. I really do just want to know the truth when it comes down to it. I don't know if I'm an honest person, but I prefer the truth. Like, just give me 
the hard facts. I would prefer the hard facts than prefer to just kind of uh, blissfully remain in ignorance, that type of thing. Okay. So those things I think are are me. The fact that I've written a book is just like privilege stacked on opportunity, stacked on living in the United States in the 20th century, stacked on, you know, speaking English. And, uh, you know, I could have spoken a language that only 200 people speak. You know, there's the Centenalese <laughs> off the coast of India. And they're still completely primitive. I could have lived there. I often think I have a friend. She's so smart. She's so smart. She like went to the best schools of everything, right? Genius smart. I mean, like much smarter than I am smart. But her family are Vietnamese refugees. She was the only one of her siblings that was born in the United States. And I often wonder what would have happened if she hadn't come to the United States and she remained in Vietnam. Would she be a rice farmer? <laughs> like, what would, what would be the thing, right? So that's why I kind of think some identity things we think, hey, I'm this. And if that helps you to kind of structure your decisions, then I don't have any judgment for it. But it's just, you know, like maybe I feel like coming from a place of no identity, I'm already doing my best to just say, hey, there, I have certain preferences for Chick-fil-A for lunch. <laughs> truth seeking <laughs> and etc. Well, and uh, so thank you for that. That was great. And I, you know, uh, hanging out a little bit on your Twitter and of late, you seem to be retweeting and commenting on things of a uh, social slash political type nature. And so um, do you have any sense of identity at all around either a party affiliation or affinity to a, a, a group that shares a point of view about a social or political issue that you think is important. You know, some, some, some people identify as somebody who supports gun control or somebody who's against abortion or whatever the topic is. And so as I look at some of your tweets, it seems somewhat indicative and please correct me if this is not the case that there are certain topics, certain areas that you think are important and you're trying to comment on and or amplify. And so if that doesn't come from a place of identity, where does it come from? I think that that does come from a place of identity, I think. And then kind of saying too, like I'm a truth seeker, I should probably say, say this slightly differently because I think some people use this word in a different way. I have an aesthetic preference for truth. It's not necessarily a moral judgment, I think, like some people might say. Like my preferences come mostly like in an aesthetic form, you know, like I prefer a world uh, and to surround myself, you know, with with these types of things. But I do think I probably had been brainwashed by my law school to prioritize efficiency because it was a big law and economics school. So <laughs> I have been brainwashed that way. I've certainly been brainwashed by my friend who was an art history major to like Mondrian, you know, like, so I do have an affinity, a personal affinity, but to certain things, but I would say it's more of an aesthetic uh, to prefer certain artists, certain musicians. Why, why do I like Bach over Mozart? I think it's not because Bach is better, even though I personally prefer it. <laughs> it's because it, that's just my aesthetic. I could see making an equal argument against the other thing. So I guess these are just my personal preferences and in therapy, I learned to try to assert these things as a way to kind of shore up my sense of identity and the expression of myself. 
So if I see things that violate what I think is somebody's personhood and autonomy, then I might say something because it helps me to make internal feelings external as a way to kind of like solidify that sense of like, no, I'm a person who wants to respect other people's autonomy. That's part of my identity. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, now, you appear to me, uh, Emmy, to be somebody who is somewhat of a missionary. Uh, it appears that your book and your you know, podcasting and going on Dr. Phil, you know, all the things that you've done, your YouTube, all of that stuff, my experience of it is uh, independent of, let's call it the content <laughs> for a second, but the, the, the messenger is delivering a message because it appears to me, I have an interpretation of you that says you're on a mission to um, educate people. But I'm curious, is that how you feel to you? Yes, that is another thing that I have identified truth seeking. And I do like to teach people. And part of it's just, uh, you know, if you see something, you're like, hey, it's easier. Uh, have you ever seen the Californians on SNL? Yes. The skit? Yes. <laughs> so, where they're like, no, you're crazy for wanting to go to LAX via that interstate. It's much better to take the this interstate yes. to the this, take this exit. So I do feel like I, I have that impulse to be like, no, don't get stuck in traffic. You don't have to make the same mistakes that I made. You don't have to take <laughs> this route to LAX and it will take you two hours. You know, it's much faster. So this idea of like, once you discover something like, wow, that's a that's a great thing to learn. You know, that makes my life better. I really do want to kind of pass that along. I also just think in the case, for instance, of like the, the first book, you know, the first book writing it was interesting because it was just a snapshot of my life at that moment. But I really felt the need to just share it, even though a lot of people were like, what's the point <laughs> of sharing this? But I felt the need to share it. And now I'm so glad that I did because... It just presented like pre-therapy. Here's what it was like to be me in my early 30s. This is like exactly my experience. And I meet psychopaths all over the world now. And I often meet people who are in that exact kind of experience where they're, they, they had seen their psychopathy as a superpower for so long, you know, far into their 20s. And it just kind of helped them every, in every instant. It seemed to give them an advantage over other people who were struggling with different issues that they weren't struggling with. But then eventually it all kind of catches up with them. Their late 20s, their early 30s, going into what I kind of call the reckoning stage, where some of their bad choices are catching up with them. The fact that they don't have deep relationships catches up with them. The fact that they don't have any sense of meaning or purpose to their life catches up with them. And they start to wonder, what is this all for? And I thought, this is, this is like a sad state. We have a bunch of people in the world that are so just lost about so many things. And they're looking for information primarily. And that, I just want to give them information. And they can choose to do with it whatever they want to do with it. Or choose to believe it or not believe it if they want to believe it. Fascinating. Now, if I didn't know any better, Emmy, that could sound empathetic. Yeah, I think about my own. I have the exact same motivation in my work uh, as somebody that, you know, lived through stuff and did stuff and learned stuff and who was radically different, has a very, you know, neurodiverse, as, as they sort of politely describe folks uh, like us today. 
And, and as somebody who had success, you know, one of my favorite expressions is if you're lucky enough to make it to the top of a mountain, throw down a fucking rope. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I do today is around trying to throw down that rope. And I think it comes from a huge part of empathy. What you just said, I don't want others to suffer from what I suffered from. And if others can learn from my learnings and get further, faster in a way that works for them, that's the contribution I'd like to make. So what you just said <laughs> sounded a little empathetic at me. Yeah. But I also said, I don't think it's unempathetic. I'll get to that in a moment. I also said earlier, I have a crazy aesthetic for efficiency. <laughs> and I don't know where that came from, if it was because I was brainwashed in law school or what happened. Actually, my dad was an economics major. And the best way to try to kind of get him to do something was to show him how it was more efficient. Like, actually, it's more efficient for us to go, let's say my preference is Taco Bell over McDonald's. I'd be like, it's more efficient to go to the Taco Bell because X, Y, Z than McDonald's, right? That was going to be the reasoning that appealed most to his aesthetics for reasoning. Everybody has, I'm sure, different aesthetics. But also, I do have, uh, for sure, I do have, what do we call it? Cognitive empathy, so there's effective empathy, which is the feeling. If somebody gets sad, I don't start feeling sad. I still don't, even after therapy, which kind of suggests to me that the brain wiring just didn't happen early enough, you know, like one or two or whenever the wiring would happen for that. And we do have neuroplasticity, but we we don't have forever neuroplasticity. Like I'll never speak French fluently without accent, I'm sure, because I did not grow up making those sounds with my tongue or whatever, you know, the rest of my mouth. So for those same reasons, I just probably will never have that effective empathy in which I'm feeling somebody else's feelings. But I can't put myself cognitively in their shoes and think, hey, what is it like? Uh, Like one of my big interests, I don't really do a lot with this except just on Twitter. One of my big interests is uh, eradicating poverty. Right. Because I just think, why are there people living, you know, on like under a dollar seventy a day or something, you know, like crazy, ridiculous amounts where it's it's certainly hurting their cognition. It's hurting their development. It's just so inefficient. It seems like to have these situations, but they are quite complicated. I understand they're quite complicated, but, you know, I'm a big proponent of let's try to figure out ways to help, you know, pull people out either through education or through, I think, often uh, government reform, you know, or empowering people. How can we empower people is, is a big, uh, in fact, I have, a, I have a nonprofit. It's called You Are a Force. So I'm, I'm really big about this kind of empowering people type aspect. And the idea being that we, I think a lot of people think the problems in the world come from people being too empowered. You know, the privileged are too empowered. The, the elites are too empowered, you know, that they, they feel entitled and they kind of rule things. And I kind of just come at it from an opposite thing of thinking it's because there's an imbalance there. There's a power imbalance. The, the lowest people don't feel empowered enough. If we just empower everybody, then then we'll reach that balance that we want to see in the world. But that doesn't come from a place of empathy. That comes from a place of cognitive empathy. That is to say, and you're clearly somebody who's you know very intelligent, of course. So from an intelligence perspective, you can look at what's happening in the world and say, that doesn't make sense to me. I, that, I, I don't like that that is in the world. Is that sort of how it is in your brain or how is it in your brain? 
yeah, that is how it is in my brain, but I wouldn't say that's intelligence. Like intelligence. Oh, it's not. Okay. Yeah. 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 I should, I should back up because I know people, one of the, the most controversial things I said in my book was that I was smarter than most people. And just, I should caveat now and say my brain sucks now that I'm old. So don't worry anybody. I don't think I'm smart at all anymore. <laughs> I'm clearly stupider by leaps and bounds uh, than I was. And, uh, so yeah, I just think it's an aesthetic. It's just like, wow, I just really prefer, you know, like blue skies and sunshine and efficiency and people being empowered. Hmm. Thank you. Now, if I remember the stats, right. And, uh, if I'm getting it wrong, please correct me that it is estimated that roughly one in a hundred people might be a socio slash psychopath. Is that, is that correct, Emmy? I think, I mean, I don't do the research, but that's yeah. what I have heard as well, yeah. And so it, that means all of us either know or will know one, and some of us, and I believe I'm one of them, will have a relationship with one o over an extended period of time and not necessarily understand that you're in a relationship with a psychopath. Right. So what is it you, you know, if you go back to the missionary sort of teacher part of you, what is it you really would like the world to know about um, what it means to be a psychopath or a sociopath? So this is a, such an interesting question. And it like speaks to, I just joined as a member of the advisory board, a nonprofit, Psychopathy Is, like it's psychopathyis.org, which has for, for the first time a group of a list of uh, resources for psychopaths <laughs> who, want, who want resources, who want treatment, a group of like a couple dozen people throughout the United States who are willing to treat psychopaths, therapists, psychologists, other clinical specialists in psychology. Uh, and in this last board meeting we had, they were kind of talking about how they want it to be a little bit like Autism Speaks, where you're just kind of uh, getting certain things into the public consciousness, certain truths about like, what is the reality of what we're dealing with? And if it is such a problem, if psychopaths are such a problem, then why aren't we prioritizing research? Why aren't we prioritizing uh, uh, therapeutical approaches, you know, trying to find therapeutical approaches that will work for these psychopaths? And there are all these studies that suggest, you know, after decades of, of hearing that uh, they can't be helped, there are all sorts of studies that suggest that, yes, they can. They can be helped. And they're just, you know, barely kind of peeling, peeling the peel off of, you know, the different approaches that could possibly work for psychopaths. And people are like, well, psychopaths aren't motivated to change. Who says, <laughs> you know, who, who's saying these things that seem to be just kind of so widely accepted, not even just by lay people watching Hollywood films and, and stereotypes, but even within the psychological community, that's kind of the rot is so deep when it comes to psychopaths in terms of being like so pseudoscience uh, that it has infected so much of even the people that say that they're, they're, you know, they're there to help people with mental health disorders. But there are so few uh, clinicians who are actually willing to do it because they have all these stereotypes and stigmas that even they believe. Right. So it, it's kind of a very difficult situation. I kind of lost where your question was. Sorry, Chris. Uh, so, no, no, no worries. <laughs> I, I love the path that you're on. Um, we're talking about sort of um, what you want the world to know and kind of what the mission is. Mm. Um, and so 
you know, having consumed a lot of your work and listened to you on other podcasts, there, there's a dumb question you, or maybe it's not dumb. I don't know. You'll tell me that everybody seems to ask you. Um, and I don't know, is this what everybody's afraid of is, is well, and, and by the way, and I told friends and family that you and I were going to have this conversation and many of them expressed fear. And so, and I was sh- shocked at that. Because I, of course, have no fear about having this conversation with you, and maybe that makes me stupid, but I don't. So I guess my question is, when people ask all the time, well, shouldn't I be afraid of you? And, you know, understanding some things about your past and getting fired and not being able to be a part of traditional companies and institutions and so forth. I assume that's because they're afraid you're going to do something horrible. Um is that the case? Is that what the fear is? That's a really good question. I'm super glad you asked that. That's such an insightful question. And I think, you know, maybe that's what they say to themselves. This is just a guess. And we all know I don't have empathy, so maybe I, I'm completely wrong. But I my, I think the thing that people really fear is uh, someone kind of getting one over on them, like being kind of tricked. Right. And it's uh, this idea that like when I when the book came out, I had colleagues of mine, really good friends kind of write to me and say, you know, I never felt like you were manipulating me, but maybe I'm just being stupid and you were the whole time. And it was kind of like uh, a like not in a mean way, but this is the one phrase that kind of comes to mind that is this phrase, but like, don't flatter yourself. Like in all of my, (laughs) in all of my doings, how much time do you think I have to devote (laughs) to, to trying to ruin your life, for instance, right? And I do talk about that in the book, but it was like something that maybe I had done like a few times in my lifetime, not a few times a day, you know, (laughs) like... I have an active law practice. You know, I have family obligations. I am I have to go see my nephew's uh, championship baseball game tonight. You know, I cannot just spend all of my time trying to manipulate. <laughs> and for what reason? For what reason would I choose to do these things? You know, so so I'll say that, but I will say on the flip side, is it true that psychopaths mask all the time? Yes. And I think that's kind of like getting closer to the heart of a real concern is that you're in a relationship with a psychopath, whatever the relationship is, friendship, family, romantic, professional, and you're just afraid that what you see is not what you get, that the person is different from how they're manifesting themselves to you. They're masking their true selves. And the, the answer to that is, yes, they are masking their true selves. And that is what is one of the sources of like psychopath burnout, right? The same way that if you kind of just white knuckle through your job or white knuckle through your family life or white knuckle through, you know, whatever it is, your religious life or something where it's not really working out, but you're just pushing it. You're just like making it work day to day. You're just kind of forcing things to happen, forcing yourself to engage and and whatever you will get burnt out from whatever that is. You'll get burnt out from that relationship, from that job, et cetera. There has to be a good, you know, like relaxed feeling of this is, this is fine. This is easy even to kind of do. I'm okay with this, right? So psychopaths, 
when they're trying to successful psychopaths, at least when they're trying to integrate into the world, they're having to mask so much. They're having to, you know, pretend that they're sad when you talk about your cat dying, right? Because if they're not sad, they have to pretend that they're sad. Otherwise, you're going to judge them and ostracize them, right? You're so kind of tuned in. This is just my perspective <laughs> and a perspective of, you know, a, a few other psychopaths I've spoken to. You're so tuned into the idea that everybody is empathetic, that if you see like even the slightest sign of lack of empathy from somebody, you're like monster ostracized. <laughs> you know? So it's like in order to not have to deal with honestly that that sort of like prejudice from others that you know you have to re react emotionally in a particular way then you do have to mask it's interesting because i have an older brother who he's not i don't yeah he, he might have a personality disorder i'm not sure what his is but he's so super rigid and kind of almost like speaks like a robot you know has like some some things about him that are just like off-putting to other people and th he also has this problem where he does not give the emotional reaction that people think. And so they judge him and they punish him socially for it. And it's so sad to see because he has kind of a weirdly mixed reputation in the community in which some people are like, you know, yeah, absolutely great. You're so helpful because he is. He's like the type of person literally to give you the shirt off his back. But since he's not giving those emotional, social responses that they expect they socially ostracize him and he has like this a flip side where people are like weirdo you know creepy or like whatever filling kind of the blank where they think maybe he's he's just like pretending to be a good person and they go off you know like <laughs> like 50 different iterations later of what they think he might possibly be and then they're that's just his kind of social world that he lives in I think it's unfortunate. Luckily for him, he's too oblivious to adapt and mask. But psychopaths are not too oblivious. They they know they know that this is what you're thinking. They've already gone through it. I had I spoke to one who was like I knew as a child that acting the way that I am was repulsing to people. That people were truly repulsed, and I just had to make a choice: Do I want to keep repulsing people and having to deal with that? Or do I want to just pretend to be something different? So the, the solution here to the, the real core fear, which is that you're, you're not getting what, you, what you're seeing uh, from a psychopath because they're masking, is probably you, <laughs> the you, collective you, you know, a collective like, I don't know if it's you, Chris, but it's me too. It's like we need to just be able to accept people for who they are without immediately judging them if we want them to feel comfortable being who they are, yes. right? And ask yourself, if you're not allowing people to be just who they are, why? What authority do you have, <laughs> do you feel like you have over this other person that you're just like, nope, who you are is wrong to me. And so I'm not going to allow you to be who you are, even though I claim that right for myself. Well, and isn't that the source of discrimination and racism and all the isms, the rejecting of your right uh, to be yourself and the accepting of my right to be myself? You know, it's like it's like free speech. Everybody's free speech until somebody says something they don't like. And then they're like, right. well, maybe you shouldn't say that. So, OK, so there's two pieces that are sort of emerging in my mind, Emmy. One is this fear that, well, 
if I befriend Emmy in some way or work with her or have her on my podcast or whatever it is, she's going to do something horrible and violent. So I think that's a fear that people have. Uh, and then the second one, I think, um, is uh, how do I know if you don't have empathy and we develop a relationship, how do I know it's real? How do I know it's meaningful? If, I, if I'm invested in a relationship with you, you know, can psychopaths love? Can we connect? Or, in, and in, this was the case in my case, the psychopath that I knew uh, just sort of one day did a giant stop, change, start and was gone. Mm-hmm. And this person sort of divorced their entire life and dropped it in such a cold and bizarre way. It was shocking to, and it was many, many people that this person just walked away from. And everybody, including myself, had the very similar reactions, which is A, what just happened? And B, did I ever know really know this person? This, so so my two big questions are um, why should people not be afraid of you? And secondarily, if they can get over that, I don't feel a fear towards you, but uh, if they can get over that, then um, how can they feel comfortable that if they make what feels to them a quote unquote normal, whatever the fuck that means, investment in a relationship and, you know, beginning to want to spend time with somebody and do things with them and so forth. How do I know if that's real for me, how do I know it's going to be real for you and valuable and meaningful to you? Yeah, let's go. Let's go in order. So the first one, uh, you know, violence is an interesting thing, and I think that we have to first acknowledge that Ted Bundy was a psychopath and killed a bunch of people, right? So I think there is some some reality, you know, that there was at least one psychopath serial killer, right? Now, do I think they all are? I don't think BTK was. He he was like not a smooth operator. <laughs> you know, he was like an emotional guy. You know, who was like driven by narcissism. He probably was something else, right? And as you kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer seemed like very emotionally troubled, right? When we kind of get into some of these other ones, we realize that they have like terrible mommy issues that just a psychopath wouldn't have, etc. Right? So even though you know the the part of and Amy, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a psychopath wouldn't have those uh, feelings because they wouldn't have feelings that way towards their mother or whoever it is. Yeah, they wouldn't feel connected to them. They wouldn't feel that like psychological bond as much. They wouldn't they they're not motivated by their feelings. So if you had an opinion that your mother or father or uncle or some important adult in your life did shitty things to you that impacted you in some shitty way, if that was your opinion, it would be an opinion, not a feeling. Is that correct? Yeah, kind of, because my dad definitely abused me, right? But I am still friends with him. <laughs> you know? I still hang out with him. Like we're going on vacation together, you know, soon. Next week, we're going on vacation together. It's just like, I just cannot imagine why would I kill him? Why do I, why would I feel the need to remove him and his existence from my reality? When I'm so little invested in my own reality as it is, you know, I just have like the most superficial connection to the world as it is. So why would I be extra motivated to, you know, now if you have like some weird bloodlust, I can see. Yeah, if you combine bloodlust with psychopathy, that is a, a pretty dangerous connection. I really do think that I, I, 
But again, I'm like, do the research or whatever. If you guys are concerned about that, but I just feel like the, that combination is so rare because imagine, I don't think the combination would be any more common or that you would bloodlust is any more common in psychopaths than it is in normal people. And how common it is, is it to see normal people with bloodlust? Doesn't seem super common. That's fascinating. Is there, do you know, uh, Emmy, is there research on sort of bloodlust amongst uh, psychopaths versus bloodlust amongst non-psychopaths? Not that I know of, but I think it's really interesting. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Like, and so maybe let's take a public figure for a second before we get to this second part of my question. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we hear things in the media, uh, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin is a psychopath or, or, you know, Saddam Hussein was a psychopath or, you know, sometimes a, a political enemy that we don't like the leader of X party or the leader of that party, or, you know, that you hear sociopath and maybe psychopath more, I don't know, but you hear these phrases bandied about. So is, is, I don't know, let's just pick maybe Vladimir Putin. Is he a psychopath? See, it's funny that you kind of mention it because when they use psychopath or sociopath in these ways, they're kind of suggesting, so therefore they cannot be reasoned with. When actually psychopaths and sociopaths tend to be hyper-rational because they're not emotional. They're unemotional. And so, like, there's just no, (laughs) like, you can probably reason with psychopaths and sociopaths easier than you could normal people. So I, I don't understand the suggestion. If somebody's being super unreasonable, then I always assume they're not a psychopath or a sociopath because you can always kind of buy a psychopath, you know, like you could bribe a psychopath. Psychopaths are always looking for the path of least resistance. So why would they be committing genocide? You know, it never makes sense to me. Interesting. Like even kind of, yeah, if you look at world leaders, like people are like, oh, George Bush did bad things, invasion of Iraq or whatever. It's probably Dick Cheney. And, you know, Dick Cheney probably <laughs> has his reasons for doing whatever he did. But it's not because like the thought that there's an evil impulse or something and that the uh, psychopaths are characterized by evil or an evil impulse is just seems like super foreign to me. Like, why would they act in these ways? Uh, in what ways is it self-serving? Like, it's always a good, re- uh, self-serving is such a perfect word. Ask yourself, is this self-serving for somebody to act in this way? And if it's not self-serving, then they're probably not a psychopath or maybe they're the stupidest psychopath that doesn't realize yet. <laughs> not self-serving right so well because if you commit one of these horrible crimes then you're going to jail like if you and if you say i don't know you tell me the average psychopath is reasonably smart uh and they and they care about efficiency and effectiveness and 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 facts and you know the fact is if if you were to do something horrible if i was to do something horrible then, uh, you know, I might spend the bulk of the rest of my life in jail. And that makes no sense to, I think, a lot of us. Yes, you're most likely, or I think, you know, my personal view is that you're more likely to see psychopaths committing property crimes. And let's say it is a murder, then it would be for like the, you know, like $50,000 diamond necklace that the person's wearing or something. You know, like you would always ask what's in it for them. They're not doing the senseless, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, mass shootings, for instance, wouldn't be by psychopaths. Nobody suggests that they're by psychopaths, but it's a good illustration because it's like, well, there's nothing in it for them. They're going in and just killing for the sake of whatever they are doing, but it's not, it's not self-serving in the slightest, right? 
And so every time you kind of see something, be like, how would it be the same thing where it's like, don't flatter yourself with my colleagues? How would it be self-serving for me to spend so many hours just trying to manipulate you? <laughs> like, what role do you think you have in my life that I care that much? You know, yes, I'm, I'm sure your friendship, I appreciate, you know, and you have good stories. And it's a pleasure to eat lunch with you. <laughs> but beyond that, like, what what do you think is like my obsession, fixation with you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, in that sense, Emmy, uh, you know, a while back we had um, the author of Madoff speaks on, and um, he got a really big insight into Madoff because uh, he was his pen pal, and he got to know his wife, and, and so forth, and so on. And the, the interesting, well, there are many interesting things about studying Madoff, but one of them was, you know, he was the former chairman of NASDAQ. So he was not just a very successful guy on Wall Street, but I mean, he was lauded by the community and the quote unquote crazy thing about what he did that I think a lot of people didn't understand that uh, Jim Campbell explained to me is he actually had two sort of parts of his business. One was a thousand percent legit everything above board, radically transparent, all the things that you would want in a kind of a Wall Street firm. And the other, of course, was the Ponzi scheme. And he controlled the number of people who really understood what was going on in the Ponzi scheme carefully. The two businesses or the two sides of the business were on different floors in the building. And so he was like um, uh, sort of Mother Teresa on this side and the greatest financial scam artist in history on this other side. Does that suggest the existence of psychopathy or not? That's a hard one. I don't know that much about Madoff. Even just kind of hearing that, I, I would say like agnostic probably on that. The The idea that he's so kind of Mother Teresa suggests that he has at least some connection to his identity where he feels like he has to kind of act the part at least sometimes, you know, like the, the way that we often hear from the medieval era you know, people would do all these terrible things, but then just, you know, build a church. <laughs> In fact, one of the most beautiful churches uh, that I've been to uh, has a bunch of Giotto paintings in, I want to say Padua, Italy, is that he like committed all these financial crimes against the church or whatever, and then built a church to kind of expunge himself from that. So I wouldn't expect, uh, you know, that's another thing like BTK versus uh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy uh, went to to death, basically, still saying he didn't do this stuff, right? He doesn't need to take credit. He does. He thinks even if there's a chance that he might not actually die, he doesn't want to like get the rap for the all these murders or whatever. Whereas like BTK is like worried that he's not going to get credit <laughs> for the murders, right? So when people are kind of worried about their ego or their their morality, when there's when there seems to be something like that, that that would make me question whether there was psychopathy there, because it sounds like he's conflicted. And a psychopath's not conflicted. In fact, a psychopath is like the most free-spirited, like non-conflicted person you'll ever meet. Because like, you don't give a everything, shit. Exactly. Everything's <laughs> just in the moment, whatever is happening, right? You know, this is just, we're going with the flow, kind of like very childlike. Well, and in that sense, it sounds freeing from the life that I understand. Yes, that's why uh, that's why it feels like a superhero power, like all through that puberty when you guys were all dealing with, you know, like all this identity stuff and like trying, you know, worried about the future and 
college, law school, you're worried about all the implications of everything. It was just like, no, I'm just doing the thing that I'm doing now. And maybe tomorrow I'll keep doing it or maybe I'll do something different. Got it. Uh, and in that sense, it does feel like a superpower. You know, you mentioned animals earlier. I mean, one of the things I love about animals is, you know, I, I, I we have a, a cat who I, we call our dog because he's so dog-like and his name is Bean. And one of the great things, of course, about animals is how just in the moment they are all the time in the moment. And, you know, if Bean has done something bad, um, you, you know, let's say bit you or, you know, did something bad behavior and you give him a little tap on the nose and maybe a timeout. And then two minutes later, it's all over. Well, his relationship with you is as though none of that happened. He wants to play. He wants to cuddle. He wants to lick you. Like all is forgiven in a nanosecond. And, and so the way you describe yourself is is almost being-esque in that sense where it's like, okay, well, that just happened. But so what? Here we are in this moment and let's do this in this moment. Exactly. Yeah. It's very kind of like Teflon-y. Like it's very difficult for anything to feel like it really sticks and like has, you know, continuing meaning to you in the next hour, whatever it is. But I do want to say one other thing about violence. Uh, So we've, we've spoken to it a little bit, but I've done this kind of calculation before. It's totally sketchy. It's totally back of the envelope type calculation. But if you take two individuals and you make and that they have their genderless and that they're not psychopathic. So just kind of two two people no gender, no psychopath, and you change one and you make that person male versus if you change the other one and make that person psychopath, the male is actually more likely to commit violence than the psychopath is. Yeah, I, I would believe that. And one of the things, um, and I, this doesn't necessarily make me popular, but I have no experience of, of course, of being a woman. Uh, and what I know as a man is that we exist because our ancestors were good at farming, fucking, and fighting. Mm -hmm. And as a man, I believe part of the boy-to-man journey is you have to learn how to harness those three things in positive ways. Because if you don't, they will pervert and bad things will happen to you or other people. And yeah, isn't it interesting? We don't see... Uh, 18-year-old girls running around uh, committing these mass murders, right? I mean, the profile of some of these folks is like bizarrely uh, similar and violent crime is, of course, I don't have the data in front of me, but it's probably more than 80% male. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it's, it is interesting. And I just say it because I don't mean that like we should ostracize men or don't trust men or whatever. But I do think, well, we are used to having a category of people that are more prone to violence. But it is true, not all men. You know, the, the, I know plenty of men who have, would like never hurt a single person. And I think it's equally true that just because somebody's psychopathic doesn't necessarily mean just because the stats are that, yeah, there are more violent people who are psychopaths than who are not psychopaths. That is a true thing. It's equally true. There are more violent people who are men than are not men. Right. And so you just kind of have to, you know, take that for, it's just statistics. It's just probability. Just like getting on a plane is probability. Getting in the car is probability. Right. You can, and I'm kind of like, sure, take precautions, take whatever precautions you want. You know, if you, if you don't trust me enough to like, give me your home address, you shouldn't be giving it to strangers anyways. (laughs) I'm like, Good. Don't give me your home address. Right. Like I don't get offended at all 
when people are like, I think I want to be slow to trust you because I think we are too quick to trust people anyways. And that we should kind of like make sure that not just our feelings are good about somebody, but the facts are good about somebody anyways. And I think that's, it kind of gets into your second question about like, oh, you know, if, if somebody doesn't have empathy and doesn't mirror kind of your own life experience about something, how can you trust them to kind of treat a relationship the same way you do? And I guess the answer is you can't because nobody's the same as you. Nobody's mirroring your internal world about something or treating a relationship the same way that you do. You know, there's a reason why divorce is so high. There's a reason why we have failed relationships, failed, you know, professional relationships, failed all these things is because I think we kind of do a, a bad job assuming too much of the other person and talking too little about what's actually going on with that person. Like, how do you feel about this relationship? Because I bet if you ask a psychopath and you ask them for the honest truth, they really don't have an incentive to lie. You're, you're saying, hey, it's really important to me in this relationship that you tell me the truth. Like, what is, what is your level of commitment to this relationship? How do you feel about this? Unless there's some, some weird kind of financial scam that they're doing, like um, sugar daddy, sugar mama type scam or whatever, then I, I don't see where their incentive to lie would be there. And so that means that I could have a successful long-term relationship with you or I had, let's just call it feelings, whether, whether it was on a professional basis, uh, as friends, as my sister, my sister-in-law or a romantic one, regardless of sort of the, if you will, the use case of friendship or love. But I could have a long-term relationship with you in any of those kinds of use cases. I would experience what I would experience. And what I think I hear you saying, Emmy, is even though you experience a different thing, maybe than I do, that's kind of true for a lot of people anyway. And so I guess to be more, maybe a little more precise we develop attachments towards each other. So I am very attached to my wife. Uh, I'm very attached to my family and friends. Uh, when somebody goes through something horrible, I feel like I feel bad. And, um, and when we lose somebody, you know, uh, somebody dies, I mean, it's a, it's a painful loss and it's a loss that lives forever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing that those things are at a, minimum different for you. And in some cases, some of those emotions and connections might not exist for you. Um, how do I know that sort of investing myself in you, that you will, even if it's in a radically different way than me, still value me and the relationship and we would still be friends? Yeah. So two things about this, I guess I'll tell a story about my niece, quid pro quo, and then I'll talk about psychopaths and honest relationships and how they might value them. So uh, my niece, when she was like six or seven, I forget, she would, I would ask her, Hey, can you do this thing for me? And she would like reply, like, if you do this other thing for me, everything was always quid pro quo. And I was like, Oof, my niece has kind of gotten <laughs> really transactional. And I, it was kind of off putting because you're just like hoping that she wouldn't make that explicit quid pro quo, even though that pretty much is how we do relationships. There's that give and take of relationships. So I was talking to my sister about it and she said, oh, she's just in a stage where that's how she goes through these different stages of moral reasoning. And she's just in a quid pro quo stage where she realizes that that's kind of the social contract. And so it's just very explicit in her mind right now. She hasn't kind of refined it. It's very primitive. 
but it is that very primitive version of the social contract. She's just making it explicit. And then I was like, oh, she's just going through a stage. I can still have a loving relationship with my niece, despite the fact that she kind of, it's awkward that she is in this stage to me, but I can just understand that's just where she, that's her limitation, right? She's just there right now and maybe she'll get better, but maybe she won't. So I think psychopaths are like that. A lot of them are in that stage of kind of quid pro quo thinking. And I can see how it'd be off-putting and maybe somebody wouldn't want to marry somebody who's like that, but maybe they would. You know, if if they had like a, an informed reason consenting choice, then I think, sure, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. I think the problem is when people feel like they're not consenting because information's withheld, you know, and I do think that's an issue, but it's like, well, do you allow... I read recently online, somebody said, if, if you're in a relationship in which people are not being honest with you, are you doing everything you can to allow them to be honest with you? Or do you expect there to be certain answers? And if there aren't those answers, then there are punishments and penalties. You know, are you thought policing them? Are you kind of trying to control too much of what's happening? Right. And that kind of gets into the second thing, which is if, if a psychopath meets somebody who allows them to be themselves, and not mask, it's such a big deal. Because there are so few people <laughs> who would actually do that and be that for them. And it's so exhausting having to wear the mask. It's so hard to just constantly feel like you have to censor, self-censor yourself, everything that you say, all thoughts, you know, that you have to just kind of go through like one or two stages of filtering that make sure you don't say or so uh, do something that's repulsive to other people and you know to where you'd get be socially ostracized professionally ostracized maybe for these these various things so if you are saying hey i'm a safe place you can be honest with me you can say things and i will love you and accept you for who you are then that person is going to is very likely to invest quite a bit in that relationship because it's just so rare to them it's like the same reason why you know platinum's valuable is just rare fascinating that was fantastic you know it, it just this past weekend emmy uh carrie and i were uh out with uh another couple very close friends we see them all the time they live near us and um when we uh went out we went out for on, on the weekend we, for a dinner, you know late lunch early dinner kind of thing mm -hmm. and we had just had a wonderful time and, and this and that and somehow in the conversation it came up that when the four of us are together, we're not with other people. We're not going out because of exactly what you just said. Somebody farts, somebody farts. You know, if the gals <laughs> don't want to do their hair, put on makeup, or I don't know, you know, whatever it is, they want to wear sweatpants, you know, all of that stuff. And, and, and the feeling of some of us think out loud, some of us are talkers. And if you're somebody who's like that, as I am, it can be exhausting to try to monitor your speech because you know that if you let your free range off the leash, you could say something stupid. You could say something insulting. You could you could say something racist and, uh, and maybe not mean it, but it just is going to come out. And when you're with somebody, you know, I once heard the definition of true love is somebody who loves you for exactly who you are and exactly who you're not. It changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is the problem that psychopaths and empaths share is that they they feel like they can't be themselves enough. And I feel like that is what leads to the white knuckling, 
where it's like if you're in a job situation where you can't be yourself, you you constantly have to monitor, constantly have to uh, censor, to alter your behavior, to modify. I think this is, you know, I've heard people of different uh, races, of different religions, of different kind of just different in general, where they're constantly monitoring to make sure, you know, they're, they're the, the, the kind of, uh, not to make sure they're not offending people, but to make sure they're not triggering people, you know, where it, it really should be kind of on us to be like, why am I requiring the people around me to behave just like me? Why am I requiring them to conform to my idea of what is normal, good behavior, civil society type behavior? So I, I think it's a, it's an issue that not just psychopaths have, but everybody has. I think that the whole world would be better if we could just try to be as tolerant as possible, uh, especially understanding that we don't understand other people's mindsets. You know, we may think that we do, but to your mind is so complicated. Just imagine 7 billion <laughs> minds that are equally complicated. And I think it's really hard then to, if you keep that in mind, to reduce things to just like, you know, right and wrong and uh, black and white type of judgments. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Now, and if you don't want to talk about any of this stuff, that's totally fine. Um, I have heard you talk publicly about being in a, in a committed uh, long-term partnership relationship with another uh, sociopath. Is that anything um, you want to talk about or share with me on? Cause I'm so curious how, what it's like for you to be in a committed loving relationship. Yeah, I would say that there's kind of two levels to this. I would definitely say it started off as like, uh, you know, kind of like a mentorship, you know, as you were saying, like a, like a missionary work, like, hey, I can see that you're trying to get better. And I just have some ideas about how that might go or some things, some things just uh, to try if you would like to try. So it kind of started off that way because she was just, again, one of the, the various psychopaths that I met. And it just happened to be like, you know, and it's funny, like, how do psychopaths act on a date? And I was like, let's talk logistics. Do you want to make out? And she was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then she's like, maybe tomorrow. And I was like, how about 2 p.m. tomorrow? That's when I'm free. And she said, okay. And then like, as we were making out, then I was like, are we soul bonded? This is the first time I felt soul bonded to somebody. And then I thought, I will just keep pursuing this and see where it goes. And because she was at the very beginning of her therapy, luckily she had started therapy. <laughs> because like to, to try to have a relationship with a playground stage, you know, don't care, totally in the moment, psychopath is a challenge. You know, you can imagine it's great for them because they're totally in the moment. But you can imagine there's a lot of stuff that kind of falls by the wayside. Uh, she would even say things like, I don't remember what you look like. Can you tell me what you look like and what car you drive? So I recognize you when you pick me up from the airport. <laughs> right. So I can imagine a non-psychopath being like, this is offensive. But to me, I was like, well, she just like her brain is very good at uh, compartmentalizing. It's uh, like hyper-focused attention. That you would expect, I think sometimes people on the autism spectrum, I think, have this. So hyperfocus on one thing means they're totally ignoring something else. And so every once in a while, I'd just be like on the phone because it was long distance for quite a while. I'd be like, 
maybe it would be better to talk another time. You know, if I just felt like she wasn't listening or I was being disregarded, but just kind of, you know, the same way understanding that my niece was in a quid pro quo, I was like, she just is doing what she can right now. And then when she is focused on me, she is choosing me, (laughs) you know, she is like choosing to love me. And so that was a challenge for sure. But I think it's like super rewarding too, because she, she's made such progress. We've made such progress. And it's really interesting uh, to be in that type of relationship because as, as we say, you know, you want to be around somebody that you can just be yourself. And she, uh, she can be, I think she said to me at least that she feels like I'm the only one that she can be completely herself around. And I feel the, the same about her. Well, I try to be myself quite a bit more than she does. She still masks Uh, She's still trying to work through that (laughs) about when she can be herself and when it's appropriate to mask. I guess you're at the bank, you know, you're like, you you are masking. Everybody is. How are you doing today? Fine. Great. (laughs) You know, Uh, just kind of the the normal social niceties. But yeah, it's been great uh, being in a relationship with a psychopath. Now, I don't think that uh, I could have been in a relationship with her if she wasn't kind of willing to meet me kind of in the middle about certain things if she was um you know like if she if she wasn't herself kind of trying to identify with her own emotions uh if she herself wasn't trying to uh live a life of you know meaningful self-expression uh so i don't know it's it's tricky all relationships are tricky i guess yeah is there is there anything else you want to know (laughs) well i just i just find it fascinating and um you know, when I first discovered this about you, I was like, what? And the more I thought about it, and then I listened to the two of you on a podcast, the more I thought, well, of course, you know, actors marry actors and doctors marry doctors and, you know, people with different affinities and superpowers and capabilities and mathematicians marry math, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, well, yeah, it would make sense. And, but the part that didn't is like, and this is sort of why this conversation is so fascinating and why I appreciate it so much, Emmy, is if the main or one of the principal characteristics of being a psychopath is not experiencing empathy, how do two people connect and love and stay committed uh, emotionally? I, you know, I understand physical and, you know, other elements of a romantic relationship, um, but how do you have this deep, profound, you call it, you call it soul bonded, which is a great term, kind of relationship when you don't give a shit about each other? That's sort of the, the, the novice, bluntest way to put it. <laughs> yes, love it. Uh, so I think that though there is, there is a distinction, like when you feel empathy, you're feeling their emotions. And in some way, I'm like, that's like a cheat code, right? Because you you then almost... Like, I, I don't mean to degrade it or to, to demean the experience. Oh, of don't, empathy. don't, don't mask yourself. I want to fucking know what, yeah, well, when you, you know, see somebody crying or experiencing some kind of empathetic feeling, what, what goes off in your brain? Well, often I'm kind of like, oh man, here we go. This person is kind of dumping uh, cognitive load on me. I'm going to have to like process through this. You know, somebody's crying. Uh, I'm going to have to like put in like quite a bit of work, drop what I'm doing, put in some work. But it's kind of like, you know, when a kid is like immediately, you know, oh, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. You're like, this is just a necessity. I don't blame them for it. But it is like, okay, this will take at least 15 minutes (laughs) of me just dedicating 
time and energy to this particular thing. But just because you're not kind of experiencing the empathy, like I do care about her. I do care for her, but it's just not in an empathy way. I love her. I adore her. You know, uh, like I admire her. I, I appreciate her. I'm so grateful for her. It's just kind of like a cocktail of love that's probably just a little bit different than the cocktail of love that you experience, where a lot of it, it is gratitude. You're just grateful that somebody gets you and that wants to be there and supports you, you know, is willing to like go get you that glass of water late at night, you know, is willing to kind of do these things. But the, the without kind of without needing that cheat code of, hey, you know, if she's sad, then I get sad. You know, in some ways, I'm kind of I'm glad that I that that doesn't happen because that just seems like it would escalate things. <laughs> you know, she's sad. I get sad. We're both sad. And now I've kind of made it a little bit about me because I'm sad, even though she's the one that started off being sad. Like, I really I really don't have a clue how you guys do it. in your relationships. <laughs> so it's interesting to talk about it uh, with people like you. Because for us, it's just kind of like, and it is true, like I do it, she does it, we get hyper focused on something, and we do something insensitive, or we don't take into consideration people's feelings. But the real solution there that we found and probably is like, something that even though you guys have a cheat code, it, your relationships would probably improve too, if you did more of this, but just communicating. I one time heard that like disappointment is uh, an expectation that wasn't met, right? You experience disappointment when you have an expectation it's not met, but that it's not ever fair to have an expectation of your partner that's not vocalized. Like you should always express your expectations and make sure they know. And I, so whenever that happens, let's say she doesn't meet one of my, my expectations. The very first thing I've trained myself to do is be like, did you tell her? Did you tell her that was an expectation that she, you know, do X, Y, Z? If you didn't, then just, that's your problem. <laughs> you know, that's my problem. And just be like, hey, can and we have this uh, way to like, you know, ask each other consent too. Can we, can I bring something up? I ask, can I say something sensitive? Can I say something sensitive about the dishes? And she'll be like, yes or no. Sometimes she'll say no. And I'll be like, maybe tomorrow or something. I'll just put it in my reminders for tomorrow, <laughs> right? And then if she says yes, then I would say, say something like, did you notice how, you know, you melted my favorite cup because you put it on the, <laughs> the bottom of the dishwasher, right? Or like in the next time, could you just, if you see that in the sink, can you just not put that one in the dishwasher, right? And so it's just very, very explicit. It reminds me in law school, we studied consent, right? And I think that probably helped me understand consent a lot to actually explicitly study it. And I think for a lot of people, like at the time I went to law school, like in the early 2000s, and there was like an SNL skit or something where they were making fun of a college. It was Alahini College or something where they were like every when you're in an intimate situation, every uh, advancement, every new thing has to be like explicitly consented to. So there was this SNL skit making fun of it, where it's like, can I put my right hand on your left buttocks? Yes, you can put my right hand on your left buttocks. And I think it does sound like that to strangers sometimes to hear us sit, speak in that way, like really explicitly to each other. And she often says, that she's like, people listening to us probably think this is like a special needs couple. <laughs> like, they both have, you know, both have, they live in a home together or something and they're having a day out at the zoo. <laughs> but 
but the way that they're kind of speaking to each other and interacting with each other. But yeah, that's that's basically the answer is it just has to be very uh, verbalized, explicit, like everything that you would naturally just assume or infer has to be spoken. Fascinating. Now, my interpretation is since you kind of wrote your book and went on Dr. Phil and began your what I would describe as advocacy work, some radical changes have happened in your life. If I understand your story correctly, you lost your job. Uh, the school that you were teaching at sort of said, I don't think so, and didn't want you com- coming around anymore. It appears, you tell me, you've suffered some personal relationship loss, et cetera, et cetera. So there's been a lot of sort of dramatic change, some of which you might view as positive, some of which you might not, since you, if you, if you, if I can use this phrase, if this is appropriate, if not, tell me, since you sort of came out as a psychopath. Um, but I'm curious how your life feels to you uh, since you made this move several years back? So I am like really proud of myself probably for doing this because it is easy in the moment for us to pretend to be something other than we're not. It is easy because we don't rock the boat. We don't provoke people where we can just kind of like lay low in life and we can just go along to get along, right? There's a reason why that phrase exists. Uh, and it is hard in the moment to not do that. It is hard to say, no, this is who I am and I am just going to be this way. And you can kind of like it or lump it because me living my truth really doesn't affect you. (laughs) And I know I'm not violating your personhood or autonomy and just living the fullness of me. And I'm willing to just kind of take this and, and do it no matter what the risks are. And I actually was surprised. I thought there was a chance, you know, academic freedom, law schools. <laughs> I thought there was a chance I, w- I could still be a law professor. I was surprised that they were like, no, suddenly you are unqualified to be a law professor because now you have come out and said that you're a sociopath, right? So that I, there were worse, worse re- repercussions than I had even anticipated but I'm still so happy. You know, you take that lump, you know, you take it on the chin and then you're just able to live so much freer. You're able to do what you want to do. There's no more white knuckling in my life. It's just every day is just living, you know, my truth, living my life purpose, you know, going through therapy, learning all that stuff, being able to identify with my own emotions, with my own, you know, strengthen my sense of self. And just to think, I now tell this is very difficult. It's a very difficult process. You know, all mental health issues, I'm sure are difficult. And this one is just as difficult. It's like a multi-year process. And there's so many low points while you're trying to kind of connect with that sense of self. Because once you have that sense of self, you have feelings now that people can hurt. And so you go through sort of the second puberty. That's so awkward. It's like adult braces, you know, where people can actually hurt your feelings. And it's the first time that this has happened to you. You've made yourself vulnerable enough that people can hurt your feelings. So you have to learn to process those feelings, feelings that you really have basically ignored all your life, bottled everything up. So you're dealing with all these past traumas in certain circumstances. If there is trauma there, it's like a very difficult process, but the end is so freeing, beautiful, you know, just like constant self-expression, sense of purpose, sense of meaning 
And I just wish it for everybody. You know, I think this is especially true of psychopaths or it's uniquely true. This particular specifics apply to psychopaths. But I feel there's so many people I know that are living half of life and they're just they're afraid that if they try to live a full life, that there's going to be negative consequences. And I think, unfortunately, there are. Why? You know, why do we punish people who, who try to kind of live their full truth? But sometimes we do for whatever reason. But if they just keep being bold, you know, celebrating Pride Month, <laughs> if they just keep getting bold and living their truth and kind of just saying, you don't have to be okay with it, but I'm okay with it. And I'm going to keep doing this no matter what you think. Uh, then I think that's that's just the best way to live, to just be self-empowered and to like come from a true true place of self. And there's just such joy in that for me. And I, I, I can't imagine going back, even the carefree life of, of being a psychopath and living in the moment. Like I still get to live in the moment just as my true self now, you know, true self that's on, uh, I feel like my own path. And I just, I advocate so strongly for other people who feel like anything, you know, uh, like feel any sort of uh, connection, you know, to my story you know, and, and maybe uh, experience other difficulties that I've experienced, that there is that beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. And it definitely is, you can accomplish it and, you know, just keep going and, and you'll get there. And it's just so great. You know, I really do feel like a missionary in that sense where I'm like, there is a heaven on earth and it is, you know, living your true fullest self. I couldn't agree more. There's a there's an old story. I don't know if it's true, but it's such a great story that um, apparently Michelangelo was asked how he created his famous sculpture of David. And he said, supposedly, it was easy. All I did was remove everything that wasn't David. And in some ways, I think that's what all of us are trying to do is remove everything that's not us so that we can just be us. And if we're, I know this, this has been true for me in my li life, the more I surrender the mask, the freer I am, right? And when you're in relationship with somebody who you know has a little asterisk on you, they love you, but you do a lot of things to try to mitigate that, but, and that, I, I can't imagine being a psychopath because I know what that feels like, that level of what you describe as masking to try to well, I got to think about everything I say in front of this person, or I got to not do that outrageous thing that maybe I would do or whatever, whatever self-modification you're doing in an attempt to accommodate another person. That's exhausting shit. Yes. So if, if, I mean, if I thought somebody in my life was a psycho or sociopath and I truly wanted to help that person, what would you suggest that I would do? I mean, I think the best thing that you can ever do for anybody, but especially for psychopaths, because they they lack this in their lives so much. It's like kind of a nutritional deficiency that's so prominent that it colors everything in their life is just allow them that safe space to be themselves, to just say, hey, it is OK for you to say the things that you say. And I understand that some of these things kind of like what you said, some of it's it's not who they really are. It's like intrusive thoughts or it's their fears about themselves or it's, it's you know, they may say, say some stuff that's pretty dark, you know, but understanding that they themselves are just working through their own thoughts. And if they've never had that opportunity to just share, 
they might just be like, well, here's some of the darkest stuff I've ever thought because I've never been able to tell anybody this. And in fact, when I meet people, that's usually what they say. Like within like the first 20 minutes, they're like, I've never told anyone this, or I've never been able to talk to anybody like this. And it just breaks my heart every single time it happens, because I think what a shell of a life this person is living if they feel like they have never found a single outlet in the world for, for some of this stuff. You know, it's just sad. And some of that stuff may be dark and you may be like, hey, I still love you and appreciate you, but I think that I can't be the outlet for you, but maybe a therapist could, you know, stuff. <laughs> but just telling them it's okay. You do need an outlet for all of this. You know, and as it all comes out, like all this backed up sewage, and it eventually will start running clear. You know, it's not going to stay dark and it's not going to stay bad. Like eventually it's going to kind of clear out. But there is probably a bunch of backed up, you know, garbage there. Thank you for that. Also, I'm curious to ask you, uh, you and I've experienced some of this myself, but I don't think anything like what you have experienced, um, you know, backlash in the, in the digital world people saying all sorts of things about you, people saying that you're not really what you say you are and that you're a narcissist just wanting attention and all. And then people saying they want to harm you or you know, there's just, you are a person who at best I can tell has been at the end of a lot of uh, negative or, and in some cases harmful things uh, kind of l- l- thrown at you. Um, I'm curious what your response to that is and maybe how you think about that stuff. Well, I think one of the superpowers of a psychopath, and I do think it's probably a little bit related to empathy, is that you you don't care what other people think, right? And I think even as you're kind of, you know, you go through that second puberty in which you're getting a sense of self, and you do maybe start to realize, yeah, that did hurt my feelings. And it's not as if my my feelings don't cannot get hurt, but just to really kind of try to tap back into that idea of, uh, I can be me no matter what. And people can have their own opinions because they can be them no matter what. And there doesn't necessarily have to be conflict from that. There's not inherent conflict of me just dis- disagreeing with 100% everything you're saying, <laughs> right? I do think that it's their wrong things. You shouldn't say that to the other person. You shouldn't interfere with their own you know, construction of their identity or sense of self. Like sense of self and identity are so delicate. And we, we shouldn't tell people about themselves, you know, even if we think it's helping them, we shouldn't tell them, uh, especially without their consent. You know, maybe we, I could say, hey, can I mention something about your teeth? There's some spinach in your teeth, you know, if they say yes. But don't just assume, don't just assume that they want to hear your thoughts about you, you know, like you, you do need to kind of get that consent. So when people don't, when they say uh, things about me and they don't say it to my face, I think that's their right to say it. that's their total right to to believe it. But the second thing is, if they say it to my face, then I say, you need to ask my consent. You know, I I have the right to construct my own sense of reality. And if you trying to interfere with that really is, I mean, like a a flavor of that is gaslighting. You do not want to interfere and try to get somebody else to like adopt your reality for theirs. You know, that, that is a wrong thing to do. It's like psychological warfare to do. So I just, I just put up a boundary and I say, please don't tell me about myself without my consent. Fantastic. Emmy, is there anything else you'd like to touch on uh, before we wrap? I think that's it. 
I mean, I so I, I'll promote real quick my nonprofit. It's a legal nonprofit. If you're being detained by the police, copstop.com. And I will, I will be answering the phone and say, I'm going to help you. Don't worry. <laughs> Copstop.com. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Emmy. Uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time and with your thoughts and your, and your, uh, I don't know. Do I say feelings? <laughs> yeah. Feelings for sure. I, I spent all that money and time in therapy for feelings. So. <laughs> And, uh, and I deeply, deeply appreciate you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you as well. Well, there she is, Emmy Thomas. And, uh, you know, I'm really curious to hear what you think of this episode. Um, I don't normally ask this, but um, if you have anything to share, I'd love to hear from you on social media at Lockhead on Twitter, uh, Christopher Lockhead on LinkedIn. I'd be very curious to hear what you think of this dialogue. Emmy's book is out. It's been out for a while. It's called Confessions of a Sociopath. It's an extraordinary read. And uh, if you want more on this topic, please pick up a copy. And if you appreciate this podcast, please show your appreciation. Share this dialogue with your friends. There's a share button on your uh, podcast player right now. And we always deeply appreciate your social media thoughts and shares. Also want to remind you coming up soon, the second part of our discussion on neurodiversity with Sarah Fay, author of the best-selling Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnosis. Make sure you follow and or subscribe to this podcast, and that way you'll get it. All right. We would like to thank, thank you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means the world to everybody here. Uh, my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, OneLifeFullyLive.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. Check out Bottleneck.online. If you want a legendary assistant who will never get anywhere near you, Bottleneck.online. Don't forget to join me for Cloud Wars Live at the beautiful Moscone Center. Uh, in San Francisco, June 28th through 30. Check out cloudwarsexpo.com, cloudwarsexpo.com. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights uh, do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. Check out Lockhead.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. Uh, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic design. And our law firm is Weed and Jack. And our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. Uh, remember, Johnny Cash was right. And Emma Stone said, quote, what sets you apart can sometimes feel like a burden, and it's not. And a lot of the time, it's what makes you great. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again... Follow your different.